You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Welcome, excited to be with you in this way and what God's going to do today as we open up His Word. You know, um, as we jump back into Acts, as we've been doing um, all year, and if we look at overall um, our theme for this um, Acts series, in fact, we're going to put the uh, year-long theme series slide on the screen, maybe right now, it hasn't done already, and I want you to notice the three main words in the subtitle there, Power, Perseverance, take a look, and Witness. Power, Perseverance, and Witness. These are the three themes that drive the 28 chapters of Acts. These are the Holy Spirit-inspired themes, again, that guide the church through Acts, but all throughout history. The power, the perseverance, and the witness for Jesus Christ. This has been, again, from the beginning of the church in Acts 1 and 2 into where we are today. This has been what has been guiding and driving us by the Spirit. Let's break um, each of those down one at a time. Uh, the person and therefore the power of the Holy Spirit given to the church, of course, in Pentecost, where the church begins. I mean, when the person and then the power of the Holy Spirit is granted to the church, man, it's game over Satan. I mean, here we go. The church is advancing. You're not going to stop it. Jesus Christ filling his people and the power of God. And we remember again the church before, or at least the disciples before the Holy Spirit was given. And then after, it is night and day. The power and the of the Holy Spirit, the theme in Acts. Let me see supernatural perseverance. The perseverance of the church over 2,000 years. Think of the ups and the downs, the obstacles and the opposition that has come against the church. Think of the perseverance throughout history. What a theme in Acts. What a theme again, even in our day today. The perseverance of the church now going through this global pandemic and yet the church advancing. We just saw a testimony of that, how encouraging it is. So exciting. A huge theme in Scripture that we would persevere for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to the third word, witness. The witness of the church for Christ. And of course, when Jesus said, and you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, for what purpose? That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is so awesome. That is so beautiful. A massive theme again throughout the book of Acts. And as we turn to Acts chapter 17, and you should do that right now, Acts chapter 17, as we turn there, there may not be a more powerful theme or example of witness in the whole book of Acts than what we're about to see today. Paul has traveled to Athens. Paul is alone in Athens. Um, Athens is a 200-mile trip from where we last saw him in Berea. Athens was the intellectual center of the world. I mean, the intellectual snobbery of Athens was amazing. Um, the scholars and the philosophers, and listen, the talking, so much talking in Athens. They loved to hear themselves talk. And it's here at this time that Paul finds himself in Athens and his spirit is provoked. He is compelled by the Holy Spirit to witness 
for Jesus Christ and his gospel in what would be a very difficult setting. We learn from Paul today in his witness. We will be challenged by Paul today, and we will be encouraged by Paul's example today, specifically in regards to his witness. Again, one of the primary themes of Acts is being displayed in yet another context here with us today. And speaking of context, let's get some. Again, Acts chapter 17, let me read verses 16 to 21. Follow along with me. Again, make sure you have a copy of God's Word. Acts 17, 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Now he's waiting for um, Silas and Timothy. His spirit was provoked within him. Why? As he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Devout persons, again, uh, Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles associated with Jews. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Bless Paul's heart, man. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. Don't you love that? I love that. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there they would, this, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I told you they talked a lot, okay? So, it seems in verse 16 here that Paul was waiting again for Silas and Timothy, but his spirit is provoked within him by the idols. Now, we love Paul, okay? Paul is there, he's waiting, but he's looking around, and most people visiting Athens would be gawking over the beauty and gawking over the history and so impressed by everything they see and the grandeur and the splendor and the academia and just all the artism, all that's happening there. But Paul's there, and because he's so Christ-like, because he's so spiritually focused, he's not impressed, he's provoked. He's provoked by the idols that are littering the city, and he sees the emptiness and the meaninglessness and the demonic activity that is really represented in the idols. I think something that I think we could feel close to, I remember the first time I found myself in Las Vegas. I was there, again, again wait, I was visiting my brother, he lives there, we went down to the strip. I was in Vegas, <coughs> excuse me, and I was walking the strip, and you look around, and my senses were just overblown with the worldliness and with the emptiness and the hollowness and you're just and you're seeing it for what it is it's nothing it's a lie it's temporal it's just a distraction and the millions and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars and energy and people there and you're and you're provoked within and you're and you're and you're standing there watching saying it doesn't mean anything it's all a lie maybe that's happened to you at different times as well well this is what happened to Paul here and it seems that Paul had to respond. Uh, he had to do something. You imagine if each one of us were provoked in the same way? If, if you and I, if each one of us, by the Spirit of God who lives within us, and we looked at the world around us, and we were provoked, and not in, a, not in a sinful anger way. Provoked does carry anger, but it's righteous anger. But it carries, you know, a sense of just like, this isn't right. 
and just we're so agitated by God's spirit and provoked to see good and urgency for the God. You imagine if all of us were like that? Man, that would be something to see. And remember, Athens was one of the most glorious cities of the world. I love this. But Paul, he sees through it. And loved ones, we must, we must see through it too. Now is the time, again, look through our world and see how shaken it is. I read in Hebrews 12 just this morning, the comparison of the kingdom that cannot be shaken, God's kingdom, and the world that is shaken, it's temporal, it's shaken by God, it will not last. Loved ones, we have to look at the world and see it for what it is. I mean, now more than ever, the world doesn't add up, man. It is shaken, it is temporal, it is fragile, it is, it is fading, and it will burn away. But the kingdom of God lasts forever. We got to see through it to live with wisdom. So then in verses 17 and 18, we learn here that Paul goes to the synagogue and the marketplace. Really, he just wants to speak to whoever would listen. I love that. But Paul is such an encouragement. Whoever will listen, there he is. And he wants to speak to them again about Christ. Then in verse 18, look at verse 18. He encounters two groups of people. We read here the Epicureans and the Stoics. Who are those people? The Epicureans were really atheists. They were atheists who denied God's existence. Um, they also denied life after death. They were materialists. Um, they believed that pleasure was the highest virtue. They just lived for pleasure. And pain was the opposite. So their motto would be, really, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Today we would call them existentialists. Um, they believed in living for the experience of the moment. Live for today. Deny there's an afterlife at all. I mean, that, that thought is so widespread in our day today as well. Again, deny eternity, just, just, just disregard it, live in denial, escape for the current pleasure of the moment. Just live for the, that is so rampant in our society and it is a lie straight from hell itself. You be very careful with that. Watch it, you're constantly living for the next few minutes of pleasure and just trying to escape and deny the reality of what's coming. Even believers can, call, can fall prey to that. These were the Epicureans. Then we see the Stoics. They were different. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed everything is God. They believed he does not exist as a separate entity. They did not believe in the personhood of God. They believed God was in things, in rocks, in trees. Again, in material items. God was everywhere in that sense. They would be like modern day New Age evolutionists. They rejected the idea of an omnipotent creator. Stoics believed there was no particular destiny for man or life. They were resigned that apathy was the highest virtue. Can you imagine? Uh, they, were, they were fatalists, like, like, like many in our day today. There's no real reason for life. So we're just going to kind of sit here and resign ourselves to an apathetic stock. What's the point? I mean, that's pretty depressing. That's who they were. Now let me point out here, as we come up against the Epicureans and the Stoics, at least Paul does in this text, let me point out that 
neither philosophy would be very open at all to the Christian creationist message, okay? So when Paul starts to speak, again, especially as we go on in the Areopagus, he begins to speak about Christ. He's not exactly have a, a favored audience, okay? It's going to be a tough audience. It's a lot harder than preaching to a room with no people in it. I wonder what that's like. Oh, wait, I know exactly what that's like. I mean, Paul had a much harder experience in doing that. He had a very, very um, tough crowd. So this is why, look at verse 18. In verse 18, they call him a babbler. What does this babbler have to say? The word babbler literally um, means um, uh, a chicken pecking at his seeds. A chicken pecking kind of at his seeds with no real purpose. uh, A babbler uh, carries the idea of random ideas being thrown around secondhand as he borrows from others. Just kind of spewing thoughts out, whatever. So others, though, were curious of this preaching, the text says, of foreign divinities because Paul was preaching, the text says, uh, Jesus and the resurrection. Again, bless Paul's heart. Here he is. Man, what a witness for Christ. And others, we learn here, just thought he was saying strange things. These are strange things you're saying. But it was enough that they wanted him to come back and talk more. And verse 21 explains why. Look at verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Like, did they ever actually work? Did they ever actually try to get food on the table? Did they, just, did they just sit around and talk the whole time, listening to each other pontificate about their lofty ideas and how smart and great they were? It seems like that's all they did, because that's what the Bible says. That they all they did. So they're calling Paul the babbler? Uh, no, they're the ones who are the babblers. They're the babblers. And so they sit around all day. This is what they're doing. But listen, Paul seizes this intimidating opportunity and he does so with a beautiful example of communicating the gospel. We learn a lot here as Paul communicates. One commentator said this is a masterpiece of communication when it comes to Paul's unpacking and referencing the gospel in this crowd who did not know him at all and had no background whatsoever with the Christian message. Okay, so... We have much to be encouraged by, much to learn from. That was an extended introduction. We now get to the meat of our passage. Context is king. Context is so important. We will go through this thoroughly, but also we will be efficient as we go this, through this too. So point number one, here's what Paul does. The revelation, there is one true God. The revelation, there is one true God. Look at verse 22 again. So Paul's standing in the midst of, of the Areopagus, he said, let's just stop right there for a second, okay? So Paul was taken to the Areopagus. We learn that in verse 19. That's where we first see that term. The Areopagus, what was this? This was the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. Uh, The Romans translated that to Mars Hill. That's where that term comes from. Paul's here on Mars Hill. This was the uh, meeting place of the highest court. It held the authority over the civil and religious life of Athens. The Areopagus specialized in matters of religion and authority. Um, Here's a picture of what this might have looked like. This is, again, one kind of artist rendition of what Paul here is speaking. And and they're listening, again, the Athenians and these very important people. And the the babblers are listening to the one they say is babbling. Always helpful to see, again, just kind of how this might have looked. And he's speaking to them. And Paul is about to be preaching to them um, the gospel. If you look at verses 22 and 23 now, he says, Men of Athens, 
Watch what he does. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I love this, this I proclaim to you. So notice what Paul does. Paul starts with where his audience is. The, the men he's talking to, they have zero background of the Old Testament. They have zero background of Scripture. So he's getting some reference points. He's finding connections in foundation here. He identifies with their religious nature. He compliments them. I know you are very religious, he says. He references their objects of worship. Notice he doesn't call them gods because they're not. They're just metal wood objects. He calls them objects here. He references an altar of inscription which says to an unknown God. So again, he's grabbing the reference point in order to point them to the truth of Christ. But he brings them along with things they know and understand. Again, it's masterful as he does this. Now you need to know Athens to Athens had a multiple or hundreds of gods. But notice the Athenians. They were so kind of confused and worried. They had this kind of pantheistic way of religion that just in case they missed a god, they had, again, an inscription of an idol uh, to an unknown god. Doesn't that, doesn't that tell you something? It tells you just how, how empty this path really was. They had all these gods and all these idols, but they were never quite sure they had it. They never had the satisfaction of knowing the actual truth. They were always searching. They never had meaning. And so they had to, just in case, to the unknown God. Paul's going to change all of that. Paul's going to tell, no, 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 there's there's a known God. Let me just stop here long enough, though, to say maybe some of you watching right now, and just, like, this is describing our world. Always searching, grasping for something else. You get here, but it's not enough. You get this, it's not enough. You see this, but it's not, you have to keep going because it's never going to provide the fulfillment that is promised in Jesus Christ. So many people in our world, whether they know it or not, they are speaking to an unknown God, wanting to find meaning and hope. It's found in Jesus Christ. And it's here that I love in verse 23. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown? I'll tell you what's known. This I proclaim to you, Paul says. Here comes the revelation. Look at verse 24. This is revelation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, amen, nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything. That's so great. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Wow, I love these verses, okay? Here's what Warren Wiersbe says. Here's a quote by him. Love this so much. Take a look. Every thinking person asks, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Look what he says. Science attempts to answer the first question. And philosophy wrestles with the second question but only the Christian faith has a satisfactory answer to all three. Maybe this is for you right now, where you are and you're watching, and you are asking the questions like you should, like every good thinking person. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And ultimately, where am I going? Only the Christian faith satisfactorily answers all three. Notice Paul here too. He's directly confronting their false belief systems. And notice how he does it. He starts with the doctrine of creation. I love that. See that? 
He starts right from the beginning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word created all things, Jesus Christ. And again, we see here again, one true God who is the creator of all things. The doctrine of creation. This God is eternal. This God is self-existing. This God is infinitely sufficient. He is the source of all and every life. Beautiful. I love that. Now, you know, mankind is always trying to make God smaller or to put God in a box or eliminate him altogether. Of course, this is absolutely impossible. God is on his throne and ruling precisely and exactly as he desires. But isn't it so true that Human religion so often literally puts God in a box, as in a temple or an idol. But our God, loved ones, our God is awesome and sovereign, and he's creator, and he's infinite, and he's glorious, and he's omnipresent, and he's immutable, and he's self-sufficient, and he dwells in unapproachable light. He's the one who is alone, who is immortal, and holds eternal dominion. There is no God like our God. You can turn to someone beside you right now, and you can say, our God is awesome. Go ahead, go ahead, do it right now. Our God is, you can can text someone right now, and you say, our God, man, my God is awesome. He is awesome. And this is why, listen, this is why. This is why the church buildings are currently closed, but the church lives on. Because since when was God confined to buildings made by men? Amen, amen. This building's empty. Our God is alive. And you are the church, not this building. We are the church, temples of the living God. And the church lives on and is so powerful and glorious and awesome because our God is glorious and powerful and awesome. This is what Paul's trying to get them to see. There's one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he causes all things and all people to exist. The air you breathe, and the heart that beats. Praise the Lord for this passage. You need to know too, in two sentences here by Paul, in two sentences, he just wiped out the whole religious system of Greece. I love that. Two sentences, everything you believe, wiped out. Why? Well, because truth is exclusive. And the moment Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, and everything else then is deemed to be not true. How did Paul wipe out the whole religious system of Greece in two sentences? Number one, he says, temples and idols don't contain God. And number two, our service, our, our effort adds nothing to God. He doesn't need us. Our whole system of religion wiped out in two sentences. Way to go, Paul. Love that. But he does it graciously. You see that? He does, but he does it truthfully as well. So Paul bursts onto this preaching scene with revelation of the one true God. And then point number two is this. Now we see the realization that God is near. The realization God is near. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, it says, And he made from one man of every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, listen, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Why? For Then he quotes one of their own poets. In him we live, in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul here has clearly defended the doctrine of creation 
And now look at him clearly proclaiming the doctrine of mankind, biblically speaking. Notice this too. Notice it. Ready? He clearly teaches the historical reality of Adam. You see how important that is in our day too, right? He clearly says God created mankind again from one man is what he says. All humans have ultimately come from one man. Why is this important? Because it means that our God is fantastically sovereign. And it means this, man, lean in a little bit, okay? It means that all humans have been made in the image of God. That's massively important for our day. That's where our value, our identity comes from, right? The, the, the sanctity of life itself. All humans made in the image of God. Notice in verse 26, it also says that God having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, right? See what Paul's doing here? He's listen, listen. He's like, don't get all proud because you're Greek. Don't get all puffed up because you think you're smarter than other people. Don't think you're better than others because you're sitting around and again pontificating all your great theories and knowledge. Paul says the reality is, the reality is, it's all by God's sovereignty and grace that you exist at all where you are in this time and in this place. And by the way, this sentence of God determined periods and boundaries and places, this is a crushing blow to racism, devastating blow to racism, because all human beings have ultimately come from one man, made in the image of God, as God has determined and as God has decided. Man, it's a time to be grateful. It's a time to have perspective. I try to remind myself and my kids very often I try to tell them and myself, say, listen, do you realize that God has allowed you to live at this time, in this nation, in this place, in this family, in this church, again, under this government, and just of all the times in the world, of all the periods of history, here you are in Canada at this time, in this setting, under the gospel. I mean, I mean, just kids, Robbie, be thankful. God's grace and sovereignty humbles us humbles us. He's determined the periods, the boundaries, and the places. But notice what all this means and what Paul is getting at at the heart of his listeners is he's saying because you have been created by God, because you are made in the image of God, ultimately every single human being has a God-shaped vacuum in their heart. Here's a paraphrase from the famous quote by Blaise Pascal. He says this. He says, there is a God-shaped vacuum. Who's this for right now? There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing. Not money, not clothing, not a job, not some kind of identity that you try to muster up. Any created only by God the Creator made no one through Jesus Christ. That statement right there could change your life today. Jesus Christ is salvation. Jesus Christ is the answer to life. Every single one of us has a God-shaped whole vacuum in our heart that can only be filled through Jesus Christ the Lord given to us by God the Father. The Holy Spirit comes and fills our lives. We are never to die again. Man, so this means then that all humans are made in the image of God and have a knowledge of God and therefore should seek God. Because the reality is in verse 27, look at verse 27, it says, he is actually not far from each one of us. I love that. That's so powerful. God is not far. God can be seen throughout the creation he has made. 
Um, recently, I had the opportunity to chop wood. It's been a while. Chopping wood, man, what a feeling manly, chopping wood, and I'm getting one of my sons, hey, you want to you wanna have some manliness today? And I, of course, females can do this too. It's all good. No emails, please, okay? But I was chopping wood there, and I was smashing the wood and breaking it, and just, just amazed at the design within the wood, the circles and the inner core and where the knots of wood are, and look, and just stop and look and say, the glory of God. You're waking up like I am, hopefully early and you can hear the, the birds singing in the early morning of the spring and the, and the, the orchestration of the songs and the birds reacting and the, the, and, and the birds are singing to the glory of God. That song that just before the sermon and we see these churches gathering together to sing that beautiful song of blessing and just felt the presence of the Lord within me and tears of my eyes and you sense the Lord and his goodness. I mean, he is not far from us, is he? He is not far from us. In his creation, he's speaking all the times. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Every time the sun rises, it's the, the speech of God just, just proclaiming forth for a world who will listen with eyes of faith and desire to believe. So Paul, in verse 28, he's quoting one of their own poets in him we live and move and have our being. Which is a, a brilliant move by the Holy Spirit again through Paul here. He's allowing them to see your own people are saying these truths. At least pointing to the truth of the one God who is near. God is near and he is to be sought. Notice it says right there too in that they, verse 27. That they should seek God and, 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 and grope or feel their way. It's saying that God is to be sought. Listen, he, he can be known. He is to be known. And here's a reality through this message right now. You're watching right now. God is seeking you today. Through this truth right here today. God is seeking you today. Will you continue to resist? I speak to the person right now who's listening at this moment. This is for you. God is seeking you through his son, Jesus Christ. Will you continue to resist? Will you continue to try to run away? Or will you once and for all finally embrace his love? Listen, he is near. He is so near and he is so loving. Let me ask you, what are you waiting for? Stop running. What are you waiting for? Embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. Turn from sin and embrace the love of forgiveness found through the cross of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life through the empty tomb as he was raised from the dead. What are you waiting for? Do it now. Do it today. The revelation, the one true God, the realization God is near, and then thirdly, the reality, the reality, judgment is coming. Even in this context and this intimidating audience, and Paul building reference points, but he never refuses to say what's true, and he does it in love. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, made in the image of God, created by him, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, um, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's just, that's just insulting to God, that we would try to create metal or gold images, again, trying to resemble him. That's a joke. He says, the times, this is important, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, that's a lot there. Okay, let's just stop, pause for a second. Let's unpack that. Because we are made in the image of God, and because creation proclaims a knowledge of God, and because we inherently then are to seek God without excuse, therefore then, listen carefully, a rejection of God and a worshiping of idols instead of God must require one thing. What's that? Repentance. You see, we have no excuse. We are in a place of inherited guilt. We sin, each one of us. And because we are made in God's image, because we have a knowledge of him through creation, right now, special revelation of the gospel being proclaimed, because we inherently are called to seek God, and as he seeks us, if we reject that truth, if we worship idols instead of God, we are then enemies of God. And there's one thing we must do, the Bible says, we must repent of our sin because repentance brings us back to God. We repent and turn in faith and we believe in Jesus Christ and we are then restored to God. See, Paul says here that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. What does that mean? It means this, he's delayed judgment. That's what it means. God has delayed judgment, but this will not last. Listen, listen, very carefully, very seriously. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You know, this, this week I'm always praying for specific words from the Lord. Just want to hear his heart. Of course, it's always found in his word, but just themes and God, what are you saying? One, um, just a couple days ago, in my, I have four chapters a day in my reading plan. And one particular day, I remember just praying, God, a word from the Lord. In all four chapters, from the Pentateuch all the way to Hebrews and in the Psalms and Isaiah, all four chapters in their own way spoke of the impending judgment of the Lord. And I just I was struck by that. And God, God has told us again and again and again. He's like, I will come to judge the living and the dead. Judgment is real. We don't talk about that probably enough. God talks about it a lot. And he's talking about it again today in his word. Judgment is coming. We must be sobered by this. We must be ready for this. You say, well, how do I prepare for judgment? On the screen for you, I want to break down the verses that we just read. Really, that one verse, verse 31. This is regarding judgment. Ready? Know this. A day has been fixed. Judgment is imminent. Jesus Christ will return again to judge the living and the dead. A day has been Only the Father knows when it is. We believe it's coming soon. But hear this. Listen, a day has been fixed. Secondly, a standard is in place. The judgment will be according to righteousness. And if you're standing on your own apart from Jesus Christ, you're dead. Just like I would be dead. The only hope I have is Jesus Christ in me. Jesus Christ being my righteousness. And Jesus takes my filthiness, my sin. The standard is righteousness. It's not good people who have done some good deeds. No, you've got to be perfect. The text says that right there. Look at verse 31. A man has been appointed. Jesus Christ, the man appointed to return to judge is Jesus Christ the Lord in his second coming. 
and assurance has been given. We know he's returning because he approved this when he was raised from the dead. The assurance he's returning because he was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, he's going to return. It's going to come soon. And then therefore, a response is required. Repent. A response is required. Repent of sin. That's right, 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 right from the words of Paul, right from the words of God, the Holy Spirit right here today, verse 31. So much there, right there. So we've seen revelation, we've seen the realization, we've seen the reality. And then fourthly, very quickly this, now we see the response. Listen, belief. The response to all of this then is believe. Paul is compelled to witness for Jesus Christ. I want you to know, if you look at verses 32 to 34, and I'll let you look at that yourself, you will see three types of responses by his listeners. One, a group of them mocked him. They mocked him. They laughed and ridiculed him. Secondly, there were those who were curious. They wanted to learn a little bit more. And thirdly, there were some who did believe. Mocking, curiosity, and believing. Which category are you in today? Some of you listening right now, you might be mocking too. You're like, whatever. Some of you are, are curious and you want to learn more. Bless you. Jesus Christ, you just you, you find out who Jesus Christ is, man, and your life never be the same again. Some of you right now, this is your moment. Right now, you want to believe. And I implore you, be reconciled to God. I implore you right now, do not wait another moment. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess him. Confess him as Lord. And again, as Savior of your life. Right now is your moment. You know, and in fact, in order to end this message today and before we respond in song, what we're going to do is something different in this format. We're going to have a time of five minutes set aside in this service for you to discuss the questions with whoever you're watching uh, this sermon with right now. We believe this is so important, this opportunity for you to do so. If it's a little bit awkward, great. If it's a little bit strange, good. But the chance for you to sit down, and if you want to, you can pause and talk about this for as long as you want before you respond at the end of the service. But here are the questions that I want as families or the people that we're, again, roommates, whatever it may be that, that, that we're with right now. I want you to sit down for those who are listening and I want you to ask these questions. And number one, is God seeking me personally through this passage, through the word of God? Is, he, is God specifically speaking to me and seeking me out today? Is this my time? Is this my day? What is God saying to me? Here's, a, here's an awesome question. Am I ready for the return of Christ and his judgment? Really? Am I ready? for the return of Christ. Again, man, like, if you see anything from the world right now, like, look around. Wake up to the reality. This question, does my life prove that I'm ready? By my affections, by the direction and the lifestyle I live, does my life prove that I'm living what I say I believe? And fourthly, maybe this is again, Lord, please work. Holy Spirit, please work. Do I need to repent right now and receive forgiveness today? Families could be an awesome time for you to sit down. Family members, whatever situations, God knows. Maybe you're on your own and you're going to be able to reach out on our prayer lines and on our website to pray in our prayer rooms right after the service. That's available for you at 1130. You can, you can respond right now and say, I need Jesus Christ. I need prayer for this. Do it. Take advantage of it. We're going to take five minutes, at least right now as part of our service, and we're going to ask these questions. Let me pray for us as we do that. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this message from Paul. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for hope in Jesus Christ. Be with your church now as we talk through these questions. Give courage. I pray for vulnerability. 
I pray for intimacy with Jesus. Oh, Lord, um, move, work, save lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll let you talk to all those questions now.